Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, 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 welcome to Food for Thought, a podcast gab fest in which a multiracial mix of queer writers gather around the table to talk about sex, identity, ooh, culture, mm. What we like to read and who we like to read. Food for thought. Honestly, we're so tired. This is Joe O, the science ho, here to introduce a weird and different episode like we used to do. It's a live show. Remember live shows? Uh, I'm so, so, so grateful to have shared the stage for my silly little New York City book launch with one, the one, the only, Dead Michelle Norris and Garrett Conley, a friend of the pod, friend of me personally, and author of the incredible book Boy Erased, and lots of fiction that's about to be hitting your eyeballs. We talk about everything viruses. We are sorry about that. Uh, but also try to bring love, joy, pleasure, connection, and struggle into the question. We start with a little amuse-bouche, a little game to tell me and Garrett apart. Kind of difficult. Uh, and we end, as always, with one little bite. I do hope y'all enjoy. And that as best as you can be out there, baby thotties, you are staying safe and healthy and loving each other. Okay. See you on the other side. Hello, hello. Hi, welcome. Look at this audience. Oh my gosh, you're all so beautiful and wonderful. Give yourselves a round of applause. We're coming out in this heat. So, oh, yes. All right. So we have a couple of announcements. The first one being, you saw that little sterling silver white coffee carafe thingy that joe just put on the floor over there that's where you can put questions for our question and answer session that we have at the end of the show so go over there write them down it's stocked with pens and slips of paper um just write down whatever you want to ask and we will ask questions yes yeah is this on can you hear me okay good this ep this (laughs) (laughs) it basically is it truly is yeah Welcome to this, Food for Thought. Welcome to Food for Thought, a podcast, Gab Fest. Uh, I ain't doing all that tonight, but um, welcome to Joe's East Coast book launch for Virology. <laughs> Just revel in the applause, baby. Um, this 
spectacular book. I've been waiting for it ever since Joe told us that he was working on it. And so I'm really thrilled that it's finally out in the world and that all of you get to read it if you haven't gotten to read it before, um, as some of us were lucky enough to. Um, And so we have Joe and we also have our dear friend and friend of the pod, Garrett Conley, whose extraordinary memoir, Boy Erased, was published a few years ago, turned into an Oscar winning movie. You you may have heard about all that or Oscar nominated film. (laughs) Sorry. We're live. I'm always messing up when we're live. Um, But we're super excited to have you in conversation with Joe. And I feel like I get to be the head bitch in charge because I'm moderating, um, which is exactly where I like to be. Um, So in true Food for That fashion, we're going to start with an amuse-bouche. I'm feeling a little peckish. So let's start the top of this show the way any good top should. A little tease, a little something to wet your palates. Our amuse-bouche. So we're going to move your bushes today with which little white gay boy. <laughs> so basically the way this game works, it's audience participation. I'm going to read something that one of these two sluts was doing at some point in their childhood. And you're going to vote which one you think it was. So you're going to say Joe if you think it's Joe. Or you're going to say Garrett if you think it's Garrett. Are we clear? Fantastic. All right, let's get going. Which little white gay boy <laughs> baked lemon poppy seed muffins with his mom? No. 100% that was me. Wow. That they was know like you. the audience uniform. <laughs> Everyone knows. Well, you know, we like, to, we like to start it easy. We like to, you know, ease you in like a good top should. <laughs> Which little white gay boy made up an imaginary friend named Juju who had to be taken home from school for disrupting the class by his mother? <laughs> that was interesting. Everyone over here said Garrett. Everyone over here said Joe. The truth is Garrett. Um, which little white gay boy used to run into the living room and declare, they killed my baby for dramatic effect? <laughs> I mean, it could go either way, but it y'all were go, right. It could go Y'all were right. It, it was, was Garrett. Me. Yeah. Um, I used to actually go into my grandfather's um, living room and just, like, declare this regularly. And um, <laughs> what he was very do? nice. He was like, where are they? Where are you going to? Are you going to get revenge? You know? <laughs> Who are they? Ooh, such, such, I grew such up in the South. Toxic you know? masculinity. <laughs> the patriarchy. <laughs> to be like, you need to get revenge. That that's what needs to happen. Yeah. Um, that's spectacular. Which little white gay boy made homemade paper inlaid with flowers cut from the garden and bought a fountain pen to write love letters to his middle school crushes? Yeah, that's too easy. That is too easy. You I, made it too I, I have easy, a distinct Joe. memory. I have a distinct memory of they were trifold and they were a little thick, but I could slide them into the locker. And I slid in sixth grade, I slid it into the locker of a girl I had a crush on. And I waited and I saw her open the locker, take it out, read it, go like, mm, and throw it in the garbage. <laughs> and you, yeah. and, and there was a preview for the rest of your Amen. life. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, which little white gay boy cried at the movie Shine and vowed to learn Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto, but never did? 
actually Ooh. no. We got him. We, we got you. on got one. Him. <laughs> on one, yeah. Halfway through, we got y'all. Uh, it's a really bad movie, y'all. <laughs> As yeah. an adult, it does not stand up to the test of time. I that's watched I, it. Is yeah, it, that's a movie I've never seen. I remember it being visually arresting. It is, right? and there's a cool scene of him with those cutoff gloves playing the piano in the cold uh, apartment that he could afford, but... Um, it's a beautiful piece of music. I still listen okay. to Rachmaninoff. There's a scene in the book where I was in high school uh, listening to Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto with my windows down in my shit whole car and like headbanging like it was rock and roll in my horrible small town where everyone listened to country music. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to do with this one. I'm going to be honest and say that's like the only thing that you and I have in common from our childhood. Uh, I too treated classical music like they were bangers. I mean, they are bangers, girl. I love it, <laughs> but I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> um, which little white gay boy became a black belt in Taekwondo? That's correct. <laughs> wow. What gave it away? All of my muscles? And... <laughs> wow. Y'all, I, that is wow. mean. Y'all know it's my fucking book launch, right? Be nice to me. <laughs> Fuck. Trust so, me, Joe can defend himself. Oh, man. I would, had, to, I had to have friends call me off a fight just this week. Yo. I was like, I'm about to run up on this person. Oh, That's I didn't true. You, I say, didn't you, say, you say that like once a month. Too. I, I love to fight. It's... I do love to fight. Therapy is good for people, though. <laughs> Th- thank God for therapy. <laughs> um, which little white gay boy read Emerson in the forest in his backyard? Ralph Waldo Emerson. You are right. Uh, <laughs> I didn't tell fun. you before. Both of us. <laughs> Both of us, probably. Uh, 100%. I, I lived in this uh, mountainous region in the Ozarks like later on in my um, childhood, and there was just nothing to do. And it was like, okay, well, I, I'll just go out and read poetry and pretend I'm a transcendentalist. And, yeah. I mean, I did that all too, but I did it in the comfort of my air-conditioned bedroom. Oh, we didn't have air-conditioning. Did you, you must have had air-conditioning. Yeah, we had yeah, we central. Air we had central <laughs> air in the south. Ooh, she yeah. fa- she's fancy. Which they need. They need that in the south. You don't play around with that. Um, and lastly, which little white gay boy? <laughs> because this is especially Caucasian, y'all. <laughs> slipped silk Snoopy boxers into his parents' shopping cart at Fred Meyer, <laughs> which I assume is a grocery store. Fred Meyer is like one of those everything stores. It's sort of like a super target, but I think it's in the West. Is it just in the West? Yeah, that was me. All the cool kids wore boxers when I was young, and I really wanted to wear boxers, but we were a tidy whitey family. Uh, and I really thought that the silk Snoopy boxers were going to make me really cool in the locker room. Okay, Joe, I actually wrote a story. My, one of my first stories had a character wearing silk boxers. My parents told me to change it. <laughs> they were like, it's too... Too much. Wow. Too, little wow. boys don't wear that. Too so. sexual. It's silk extravagance? No. <laughs> I have a pair now. Ooh. That is no. it, I think. I'm not wearing I them. think that's it. That's, that's the last of our game. Thank you all so much for playing thank around you, thank you, thank you. along with us. So next, I think at some point we'll hopefully crack open this wine. Yeah. And um, yeah. Do we have get, wine glasses wine. or are we just drinking it straight oh. out of the bottle? Oh, we were Bring <laughs> oh my god well Disaster. someone will grab them emergency Thank everyone you. <laughs> um and in the meantime while we're making that happen oh, thank you my love um joe is gonna get set up at the podium and read from virology another round of applause 
Yay. Thank you all so much for being here. I want to thank The Strand and Sabir, who's been an incredible host. Uh, I want to thank Katie, my agent who sold this book, and the incredible Norton team, my editor, Mo, who solicited this book, without whom this book would not exist, who at every fucking point made it better, made it possible, and then made it better. To the whole Norton team, Elaine, Michelle, Gina, and Rachel especially, y'all got this book out into people's hands. To my friends who I view as co-writers of this book, uh, an essay was co-written with Patrick Nathan. My friend Stephen Booth co-wrote the archives essay. And my friends who lived it with me and gave me permission to write about it, like Andre, Goffin, Devin, David Barr, James, Peter, the rest of the COVID team, Judy. This book is our work, and I view it as such. To everyone for coming, these past few weeks have been intense and difficult. Viruses have not wanted to leave us alone. Uh, my household had two positive COVID tests in the last month, and it was horrible. I had to isolate again and be away from my partner and our dog. We've seen monkeypox spreading in the queer community. We all need a break. And so I want this book to both be a guide and a call to community care. And that includes everyone here in this room wearing masks. We're going to drink later, but outside. So many people that I wanted to be here can't, some of them because of viruses. So I just want to take a quick moment of quiet where we can all think about a person that we wish were in the room. And then I'm going to read for exactly 12 minutes and leave you alone. Okay, so I'm reading two sections of the book. Both are from different essays, but they are both kind of journals that I wrote in response to things that were happening, some in my private life and some in COVID activism. The first is from September 8th, 2020. My alarm goes off today, and today I have somewhere to be. Not just somewhere metaphorically. I have a meeting, and not just a Zoom meeting. This is a meeting on campus, the first since March six months ago. I'm not just biking to work to sit alone in my office. I'm biking to work to prepare my webcam for teaching from my lab tomorrow. I'm biking to meet face-to-face with the TAs from the other lab I teach, to show them the lab equipment we'll be using, and to get the webcam set up for them, too. This is the world that has been set up for me. I had little choice in it. This class is in person, and I'm one of the managers of the TAs, and the TAs need to be trained. And so here we find ourselves. Four bodies and four hearts and eight lungs and four mouths dangerous to one another. We sit six feet apart. We sit in masks I show them which buttons on the GoPro actually make it go, not as intuitive as you would think. Natasha is one of the TAs, and we worked together in lab for two years before I took this job teaching. How's Gabby doing? I ask. She shows me a picture on her phone of her daughter, holding her hand out so our bodies can stay far apart. I'm surprised. It feels good to be with people. It feels nice to be meeting. I'm cognizant always 
of how many feet there are between me and the other people in the room. And I imagine the air in the room slowly filling up with our exhaled breath, a potentially dangerous thing. I haven't been inside this long with anyone but Devin and Andre and Gofen, and that came after negotiating a testing schedule, talking about what risks we'd take outside of our little group. We promised to check in even before hookups. Back at work, I calculate the volume of air in the room and the number of minutes we've shared that air, but who cares? It feels good to talk to people without a screen between us. What I'm scared of is what feels good. Plagues place our bodies at odds with our minds. An hour later, I'm in a Zoom room with my therapist, Dr. Eric. Truly shout out Dr. Eric. He's in, I'm in my office and he's in his home. We see each other on screens. When do you feel completely safe, he asks me. When I'm at home, lying on the bed with Devin, I say, at that moment, I feel completely safe. What about now, he asks, in your office alone? Do you feel completely safe? Well, no, because I had to come here, I say, ride an elevator, meet with TAs. But right now, Right now, in this moment, how do you feel? What are your risks right now? None, I admit. Just be mindful of these moments and let yourself really feel them, he says. I try to scoff, but I find tears in my eyes. I tell him that even moments of pure joy and clarity have felt risky, even if that risk is invented. When I cook, as I run my knife through onions and garlic or fish or chicken, I often picture the knife cutting through the animal layers of my own flesh. Nothing feels safe, not even just cooking. These bloody imaginings started in April, and if I cut myself cooking then, I could have gotten COVID at the hospital. But I couldn't not cook. Most restaurants were closed even for takeout. For once... My blood was not my plague worry. My plague worry was the air I'd breathe as my flesh got sewed up. It's nighttime now, and I'm home again with Devin, and I'm writing. What are your risks right now? Dr. Eric asked me. None, I say to myself, none. I'm just home and writing. Maybe I see now this is why I'm writing so much. When it's just me and an empty page, I can conjure a virus without being susceptible to it. The virus becomes a thing out there, and my in here becomes safe. Praise be to writing, something I can do alone, something I can do alone with the world. Amen. Blessed be this writing. I don't know who it will save, but it has already saved me. Sing to high heaven of this writing. It is here that I feel completely safe. Consider all the worlds thy hands have made. This page is the world I can control. Oh, my soul, praise the banal meeting of human bodies and let us leave it unscathed. Amen. For mouths and eight lungs keep us all safe. Our mouths, our lungs, our hearts. Oh, here. 
Oh, words, let my lungs fill up with air. Let you words be expelled and breathed in through our dangerous air. And let us all wake tomorrow alive, but more than alive, alive, breathing deep, alive and well and completely safe. June 2021. They always say, don't meet your heroes. But I've met some of mine, and they're not my heroes anymore. (laughs) Alex Chi through writing, Mark Harrington and David Barr and Peter Staley through COVID activism, they aren't my heroes. Heroes don't make you laugh. You don't worry for their health. You don't ask yourself whether they're happy You don't see the inside of a hero's life. They can't be. They aren't fully human. You don't disagree with them about a tweet or a Facebook post, Peter. (laughs) But keep on loving them just the same. (laughs) I sent this essay to all of my co-activists to read. This wasn't my work alone, and I couldn't publish it without their consent. After reading this, David Barr, who was supposed to be here tonight, wrote to me, and this is his writing. I wrote a piece a bunch of years ago dissecting the whole construct of PWA, the person living with AIDS, as a hero. We created the hero construct as a way to change the ways in which people with AIDS were presented at the time. We were either victims or vectors. The PWA was the organizing principle around which everything revolved. We were heroes, but we died. There was no time for grief. The work could continue in the name of the fallen hero. The idea of PWA empowerment gave everyone strength, regardless of zero status. But, of course, it was a myth. We weren't heroes, and we were scared to death. The construct was useful to survival, but had long-term harmful effects. We weren't allowed weakness or grief or fear. Anger was the only emotion besides joy that was permitted in ACT UP, and it fucked many many of us up very badly later, myself included. A lot of these feelings came back for me as COVID blew up. James was living here in my house, frantic and starting his work. I was really reluctant to get involved, though. Though I did eventually, and I'm glad I did. I don't know how helpful the work has been, but some of it has been helpful. And as you say, it was personally helpful in that it gives you something to do, some way to respond and not feel helpless. In that sense, it's selfish but in a good way. I'm sorry, David. You were a hero to me once, and I needed you to be one. I needed to see queer people like me as strong and fearless and resilient and angry, but that made you less than human. You weren't fearless, and I'm sorry. I love the way David says, hey, Petey, to Peter every time we meet on Zoom. A cutesy sing-song going back and forth between them. I love calling Alex Chi and comparing the dinners we're preparing for ourselves and trading ideas for cocktails. 
Heroes aren't people. And if all your stories of change being made relies on heroes, you don't imagine you can make change for yourself. And we can, and we must. The people who fought in action in the early HIV AIDS plague years, including Alex and David and Peter and Judy and Mark and Garance and Wafa, are just people. They're fucked up and human and messy and everything else we all are. I'm grateful for these people I've gotten to know. Many of them I've only ever seen on screens. A friend of mine who knew Wafa before told me just this week that her signature look is cowboy boots. She always wears cowboy boots. I've spent countless hours with her, but I've only ever seen her from the shoulders up. I only know what you see on Zoom. This woman I feel I know so well who I have still never seen. I don't know what to make of it. I feel so close to all of them. All of them I something like love. Matt Rose pings me a few times a week. And how are you doing? And I ping Matt back. She's alive. A few times a week I ping Matt. You hanging in? And he pretty much always is. We didn't make a change with the hours we spent on RNA sequencing advocacy. We did make a change on drug screening, but who knows if it will matter in the end. We have so little control, and I at least take a small solace in this. When life seems impossible, when you wake up and stub your toe, and you're hungover even though you only had two beers the night before because you're almost 40 and your body does that sometimes now, <laughs> for some reason, and you have a full day of meetings that do not matter, and your best friend is mad at you for something that deserves it, remember that the only thing that matters is that we act when we can act, how we can act, the best and most we can. And that is it. I'm so grateful that I could do something, anything at all. Activism is spiritual work, archival work too, and friendship maybe most of all. From community and from friendship, the best activism and the best archives come. Because as corny as it sounds, trying when it's easy not to try is a simple way to love. The love of trying and failing, but trying again. Trying because the only thing more horrible is not trying at all. That love and how we tried to live it, more than anything, is what I want the record to show. Thank you so much. I need wine so badly. I love this um, priest-like look that you have going so, on with the scarf. Um, for, I know, I'm, I make everything so depressing. For those who um, <laughs> zoomed into the Texas reading, you know that I'm wearing this scarf because it belonged to one of my best friends who passed of um, an influenza effect- infection when we were in our 20s. Uh, and part of some of the writing in the book that is too long to read to you here is that in writing about her, I'm trying to make her, and wearing 
a bit of her, I'm trying to make her memory go viral and that I remember her and everyone who reads the book will then remember her and it's a, a way to sort of allow her life to continue. Yeah. Love that, it's beautiful. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was trying to make a joke. Jeff. I know! Again, <laughs> yeah. my sexuality is turning every joke into something incredibly depressing. The book has moments of lightness too, I would like to say. I was going to say, but but also beauty. And the reading was beautiful. Was and the writing beautiful. is beautiful. So thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Um, all right, y'all. <laughs> mm. Don't forget to put your questions in the little tin. Yes. Put we questions really, in really the want. It looks. Oh, yes. It's on if, table Even now. if it's just what does a monkey pox lesion look and like? You really <laughs> are free to like get up and put it in like. Just get up. Know, do this it. Is, do it. We want like, questions. There's there's wine over Don't there. Don't be shy. There's like the bathroom over there. Yes. We are not. This is not like Jeffrey your traditional Masters reading. Is putting a question in. Follow his example. You can you can shout out, emote, live, <laughs> cry. We are, we are in end times, people. All of the things are valid in this here safe space. All right. Hmm. It's time we get into the meat of our discussion, the thought process spelled T-H-O-T. T-H-O-T. And um, I'm going to pose some questions to Joe and Garrett, and they're going to answer them and discuss their work and the industry, and and it's going to be spectacular. Eh. It will be. I have faith in both of you. All right, y'all. As nonfiction writers... How has living through such surreal times affected your ability to use the genre in your writing? <laughs> I'm starting with you, Joe. <laughs> it's really hard. It is not a nice time. I mean, it's not a nice time to be a human, but there's so much happening in the world. Trying to make sense of it, even just as a person, is so hard. And then trying to write about it in ways that will make sense to other people almost feels impossible. And one of the big projects of this book, you know, it's, a, it's been a very bizarre time to have been trained in molecular microbiology and having, having had done a PhD on uh, phage, which are a, a family of viruses, and having studied uh, virology and immunology since I was in my 20s. You know, the one thing you learn in every virology class is there's going to be a pandemic. We don't know what the virus is and we don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. And we're, you know, we were overdue for one. Well, that bitch, we're underdue for one. And I would like some time off. (laughs) But it is very surreal to watch the very thing that theoretically you knew was likely to happen, uh, happen. And you know, capitalism and all the other isms around it make it so hard to respond properly. Mm -hmm. And to try to make sense of that in real time, uh, to argue that we can never understand a virus fully with only science, it's insufficient. We are, excuse me, complicated human beings. Um, It was really hard. It's a really hard project, I think, writing nonfiction in in a time when it almost is like uh, I've been reading a lot of fiction lately, and a lot of it is sort of surreal, kind of hyper, like uh, a little bit sort of sci-fi maybe, but you're like, bitch, this does not feel surreal. (laughs) This feels like it could, like two years from now, this could be happening. Well, Joe, you ran right into the current moment, and I ran completely <laughs> the other direction. Um, I, I wrote a novel 
Well, Woo! I think I've wrote a novel. I think I've you definitely it. wrote a novel, baby. I meet with my editor like in July, so we're hoping it's a novel. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I've written five drafts. Um, so I wrote a novel like set in the 18th century um, in Massachusetts with like a gay, a secretly gay um, preacher. So that's what I did. Um, but I did, uh, you know, I just I felt like I had to write fiction. Yeah. I, I'd written this really depressing <laughs> memoir <laughs> full of also beauty and sometimes humor like Joe's. Um, but, but there, you know, I was just so tired of like going around and talking about conversion therapy, which I've been doing for six years now constantly. And you're still doing I'm it. I'm still doing it. I still do events like every week. Um, and so it's, it was just so exhausting to put my own story out there over and over again. And it became surreal. Like it wasn't even my own story. And mm. I do feel like it belongs to other people because I just get so many emails from people that are like, I didn't have any of the same experiences you had, but, and then everything that follows the conjunction is like the exact description of conversion therapy. And I'm like, okay, well, um, we're all in this together, yeah. you know? Um, and like, I like to say, like America is one big conversion therapy factory oh. really. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, she on Okay, that. so I have no longer said the most depressing thing tonight. <laughs> Wow. I try to say it in a lively tone, you know. Um, <laughs> but, you're, but you're both saying true things. So I think I think the the thing one thing I think we have in common is that we view one thing that our writing can do as an as being an intervention into places where harm happens. Hopefully, a nuanced intervention, an intervention that is not sort of overly dogmatic or overly. Um, pedagogical, but is nuanced and real and present. And the thing that happens is when you try to write books like that, people will come back to you as a resource. And you've been used as a resource to try to prevent harm being done on conversion therapy. And my God, if we don't need people to be like, please don't ga blame gay sluts for monkeypox. Like, it is just not, <laughs> this shit is not our fault. We could have prevented a long time ago if we gave a fuck about people who don't live in our country and their health and use fucking medical interventions in places where we don't think it's valuable to do so. Uh, cause we just think there is going to stay over there. Uh, you know, and so when, when you're called upon to intervene and to try to undo violence, it's like, how do you say no to that? Yeah. Your, your reading was so helpful for me. Cause I was just, I was reading it and I was like, I mean, I was listening to it and I was like, wow, yeah, it is like that. We're all fucked up. We're all like flawed and we're not doing our jobs like the best at all moments. <laughs> but we just keep going because, you know, like I just keep telling people, let's not torture children. That'd be great. Wouldn't it be easy if we could just do that? Um, and sometimes I say it better on one night than I do the next night. Sometimes I'm like, you know, short with people. Yeah, don't you ever get depressed that you have to go to people and be like, please yeah. don't torture children? <laughs> Sorry, we got it real dark yeah. in here now. <laughs> like, it's like it's like I feel like I get depressed that I'm like I have to go to people and be like give a shit about each other's health. Yeah. Not only because it's another person's health, but the other person's health ultimately impacts yours. And like how why do we have to keep saying these things that are just like so obvious and apparent? And even within myself, sometimes I feel like okay, I'm tired of this now. I'm tired of like <laughs> doing this work. I'm tired of, you know, um, being responsible, you know, and I, I think that, you know, your reading was really helpful in that way. So, Well, that leads perfectly into my next question, which actually was going to be, 
which was going to ask you about. So you both know, and may, and some of you all know that my background primarily is fiction writing. Yes. And until, I read it. Until, it's really good. Stop. Finish the novel, Dan. Finish, finish the fucking novel. <laughs> and I was going to say that until, until I got the job at Yale, I was primarily editing fiction, and I, it's been a whole experience um, editing essays. But you've you've written lovely essays, also. I've written a few essays in my time, but I wanted to ask you to, having written book length nonfiction projects that deal directly with the world that we're living in, about the effect that that has, that specifically has on you. While you're doing it, after you're doing it, during the publication process, after the publication process, the process of of mining yourself in your life, and especially when it's so tied to, um, particularly in the cases of your two books, collective experiences yeah. that um, are at the heart of some of the the challenges of our most marginalized communities. Like, what kind of impact does that have on you? Like your mental health, your ability to sleep, all of that. I'm what just is so curious. Sleep? Oh go on, baby. Take this one. I'll answer really quickly because I can't go into all the details. <laughs> it's like too long. Um, for me, you know, my book came out and it was not supposed to make much money at all or, you know, it wasn't supposed to sell. They were just like, okay, it's a small advance. Um, and so I didn't expect anything. And then whenever the film and the podcast and everything and, you know, when Mike Pence was elected, unfortunately, um, we, you know, we suddenly had like a moment and um, and I had to really step up. And I don't think I was prepared for that yeah. in the way that Joe is um, currently. I mean, you're never fully prepared. No. But but I think that you are in a place where you've been a public figure you chose to do that. I know sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Um, but I was just, you know, I'm an, I'm a real big introvert and I, um, I get really nervous. And, uh, and so it, it was just really hard to be a public figure, especially someone who, as part of my story, you know, I was outed to yeah. by my rapist, uh, in my hometown and to everyone that I grew up with. And so all when I would go back home, like everyone was looking at me. Or even if they weren't, it felt like they were. And so whenever I um, do this stuff, I'm always just like, okay, what's going to happen? You know, what bad thing is going to happen? But you just do it, you know? Yeah, I, we, I'm like, we're both compulsive. We're friends. We talk a lot. Um, I deal with, I mean, what you saw in the reading that I did today, um, writing started as a place of just pure therapy for me. I was not planning on writing a COVID book, but we, with some folks in the room, were, I mean, at that point, we were spending hours and hours a week, I mean, five meetings a day on COVID activism. And it was like every time we got an, a, a view into the federal, city, or state government response, it was worse. You, you imagined it was bad. And then you actually got information and it was fucking worse. Like it was insane. And we, none of us, I think were doing that well. And so the page started as a place to, to process and to heal. Uh, and the hard part for me with this book was getting over the feeling of like, oh, so fucking self-indulgent to share your journals, so, you know. And and a part of the book is writing through the process through which I I decided, oh, it's okay to share this private writing, specifically because I was looking at. Uh, journals, diaries, and other private writing that people had written in the face of other atrocities. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online 
you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Either personal or communal, so the writing started for me as a, as a place where I'm like, I don't know that I'm going to survive this if I don't go to my therapeutic place, which is filling a page. And then when we talked about publishing it as a book, I wanted, I wanted science writing. I wanted writing about activism to be embodied and full of feeling. And I wanted you to have the sense that those of us who are working on it in this way that might seem technocratic or scientific, that we were feeling a lot of things. And as a working scientist at, who's done experiments for many years, doing experimentation feels like something it is like you've done experiments that last weeks and you're getting results back and you're nervous and your body feels like something, you know, it's like, I've never heard so much swearing as when in a science lab because you drop your fucking gel and that's like 10 days of work and you want to kill yourself. And so it was important for me, I think in sort of adding nuance to the notion of follow the science what is science? What does it feel like to do it? What does it feel like to do advocacy? Um, can we make this notion of, of science a little more human and a lot more deep? Um, I don't know what's going to happen over the next weeks, but I know, as I mentioned in the reading, that for me and a bunch of other people who are doing this work, uh, we were doing it to help but we were also doing it out of self-preservation because it was impossible not to do anything. And that's how the writing started. It was just pure self-preservation. Can I have more wine? Preach. <laughs> yes, you can. Uh, while you were talking, I was trying, I was like, can I see how, how much wine he has in his thing? Um, all right. So I want to move on to another question because we have limited time. Um, I feel like there's a lot of questions from the audience too. So I want there to make might sure be, we, yeah. we have ample time for, we might look through them and then come back to our own questions. We have, yeah, we have time. Okay. Garrett's, Garrett's book is about conversion therapy. Joe's is about our failed response to the pandemic and not just COVID-19. What are the connections between these two crises? Oof. What ties do your books have, even though they're on such different topics? I mean, we were ready. You go, baby. You start this one. Well, I, Joe and I have talked a lot about, um, and I'm reading your book, it also made me think about the subject of like being kind to one another and being compassionate <clears throat> to one another um, and how that is embodied in practice, right? Um, not to go back to your reading again, but to go back to your reading again because it was so great. Um, you know, it looks different on the ground whenever you're caring for people, um, it's hard work. 
it often, you know, feels very frustrating, <laughs> especially when someone's in a really bad place and you're maybe in a good place and you want to keep moving and you're like, wait, okay, I can't leave these people behind. Um, so that can often feel uh, like a conflict, right? Until you realize it's not a conflict because the only thing that fucking matters in this life is like the few people that you actually connect with, right? Like it is all that matters. It's all that matters. And, um, and, and once you get that, you're, you'll be willing to do just about anything. Not saying like, you know, there's no boundaries or anything, but like you will, you know, when someone is suffering, you, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice whenever you think about that. Um, and um, I, I really think that's what we have in common. And I think that's why you wrote your book. It's why I wrote my book. Yeah, I view both of our books as failures and harm done to people that's not their fault. And how people are impacted by things as disparate as conversion therapy and viral infections. But who's impacted and how does it impact them? There are structures underneath these harms. And I think both of us are trying to reveal that and trying to care for the people who are most harmed by these different things in society that, um, that ki- I mean, that kill people, that kill people. Uh, and I think both of our books have uh, a deep care, joy, and empathy for the very close people. But I think there's also, I mean, we wouldn't have written them if they're, if like, we're both like, I, I literally have like 10 people in the world and those are my people and like eight, eight of them are in this room, you know, and it's like, that's it. I care about these people and only these people, but of course not, because otherwise we wouldn't have put ourselves through um, writing this book and, you know, viewing, you know, the care is a huge theme in my book and I think it's a theme in your book too, uh, and that caring for one another matters more than anything at all. And trying to, when you see a harm, it's not okay to see a harm and not do anything. If you're in a place where you can stop a harm from happening, it's really essential that we all step into that role. And we are only going to have more and more and more harm coming our way as the planet gets warmer and viruses cross over more often, as politics get deeper and deeper into fascistic nonsense. All we have is care for each other. That's it. And we all have to step up in the places where our care can actually intervene and make a difference. That was beautiful. I was just over here cackling. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, oh. Bad things coming our way. That was so beautiful. I'm I'm almost crying, but I'm on stage. (laughs) Um, All right. So so concludes that. Q&A portion of the conversation, but we're going to start looking at some audience questions. And so we're going to go from there. Oh my gosh. Oh, oh I will. Thank you. Do y'all know producer Alex? Can we give producer yeah. Alex producer a round, Alex, a round of applause? applause? The fucking glue that holds it all together. Y'all oh. don't know how many times she has kept me from getting canceled. That and how many true. times that she has true. allowed this one to be dragged on Twitter? That, all of that because is he true. deserved it. Can we also talk about how fucking hot she looks tonight? The hair, power lesbian hair and shoes, yes. and her and her mm. jacket. Yes, Stan, we stand. The spicy salami. 
All right. So this question is for Joe. <laughs> okay. I feel like you were one of the... Oh, sorry. Whoops. I feel like you were one of the few people I listened to who was so scientific yet also very much an artist. How do you navigate the logical and the reason without losing sight of the abstract and the creative? I, um, you know, I think... One of the things the book is trying to do is say that science uh, at the level where people are doing research in labs on questions that have never been answered, right? That you're, you're pushing the boundaries of knowledge. So, you know, when I started grad school, you get these hokey talks about how knowledge is a sphere and every PhD pushes that a little bit out and your PhD is going to do that too and it's good for the world. Uh, it's a deeply, they know, we all, we all did our PhDs together. They know. I think we were there for that same talk. Um, <laughs> Doing, doing research at that level is a deeply creative enterprise. And I think we should be more honest about that. Science is not just about answering questions. It's a methodology that allows you ident- to identify questions, think about ways to answer them. But with the knowledge, everyone who does science knows that every answer you get or answer you think you get only opens up more questions. And that's the point of it. It goes on and on and on. Um, I am the nerdiest person on the face of the planet and I'm deeply stressed out. So all I've been doing lately is getting home from work, having a glass of wine, settling into cook and listening to interviews in French with Michel Foucault. Uh, and I know, I know. Uh, and he talked about this thing that I think is so essential um, that is true of the humanities and is true of science. He talked about how each one of his books that he wrote, people were like, oh, you wrote about the clinic and then you wrote about prisons and then you wrote about sexuality. Such disparate topics. And he said, no. Actually, each book asked the question that the next book tried to answer. Actually writing about uh, discipline and, and, and prisons opened up the question of, of the clinic and how clinics um, also sort of uh, count people in and out of society. And then that opened up questions about how sexuality is a, a similar vector through which we normalize people or put people on the margins. And so each sort of creative enterprise or intellectual enterprise that you ask just serves to open up more work. And like, I don't really like living, but I do like asking questions and trying to answer them. And that's pretty much other than sex, like the only thing valuable about being a human being. <laughs> Uh, and science is an epistemology that allows us to do that. And writing is another epistemology that allows us to do that. You wake up every day and there is a page and there are ideas and there is play and there is humor and there is love. There is care. There is affection. There's conflict. There's abuse. There's hope. There's a different world. There's the world that we're in. And I mean, I've been like really melting down about this book launch, but at the same time, to get to spend a life doing this, what a joy. I mean, there isn't anything other that I would rather be doing than getting to wake up and think and share that thinking with the world and have people read it and give a shit. So I view them as really such similar uh, projects. It makes so much sense that you're a Foucault bitch. <laughs> wow. Foucault bitch. Yes, that is me. I'm getting, that, I'm getting that tattooed on my neck. Foucault bitch. I think it should be in the tramp stamp position, personally. <laughs> that's, where, that's certainly where he would like it. But I think, honestly, I'm a little too old for what he was really into. Yes, problematic faves. Aging. Yeah, get into it. Problematic faves. Still like reading him. I know. <laughs> Um, next question. Can you, this is for both of you. Can you speak more about the importance of queer theory studies, scholars, and their, imp- and their impact on the world outside of queer academia? 
Yeah, take that one, baby. <laughs> um, so I I did a master's in kind of like a weird 18th century, but using queer theory, <laughs> fake degree. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I don't really know what I learned. I, I just read a lot, and I loved it. I mean, I, I do remember reading a lot of Foucault and, and really enjoying that, how my brain lit up with that. Yeah. Um, and for me, um, you know, my, my brain is kind of a blender. So I, I would just like take concepts that were helpful for me in writing because I mm -hmm. always just wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to write fiction and nonfiction both. Um, and so when I started to compose like Boy Erased, I was thinking about all of these ideas. I do have a Foucault quote in the second part of Boy Erased. You think I don't know that, baby? Yeah. <laughs> um, about making the rules fit your own. Mm. Um, standards and uh, so I just I, I, it really helped me theory has always helped me think through um, ideas about art and life and how the two fit together and um, uh, Thomas King was somebody I really liked if you've ever read any of his stuff um, he writes a lot about how gender and sexuality was sort of like manufactured in the 18th century in this weird mm. way um, and I'm doing a lot of research around the 18th century has also brought me back to theory quite a bit. Mm. Um, and I absolutely love it because, you know, how do we account for the rigid gender roles that we've been forced into? And um, often you find so much variety in the past, right? Mm. So many different moments, these pockets of existence in which different possibilities existed. Mm. Um, and it's very easy to look at a sort of linear path and say, okay, well, you know, like gender was created at this point, or, you know, like our, our modern understanding of gender was created at this mm. point, but it, it's not true, right? It was never yeah. linear. It's always had uh, a very um, disparate, uh, you know, sort of way of being. And yeah. so that's been really fun. Like, I can't tell you who I learned that from right now, because <laughs> my theory brain is, doesn't remember, but it's fun. Yeah. And it, it also, I, theory gets a bad rap for being hard to read. And it can be. I do think that, like, you have to wrap your brain around it. It's a different language. It's like science has a particular language to it that one has to train oneself in to be able to read it. Theory is the same. Um, I wouldn't be myself if it weren't for theory. Theory made me. If, if I hadn't read Judith Butler, Gender Trouble, I would still be trapped in the idea of thinking I'm a man. Oh, hell, you know? Uh, if, if I hadn't read Bell Hooks say, the first act of violence the patriarchy demands of men is not violence against each other, but violence against the feminine portions of themselves and boys who are not able to do that are then attacked violently by their peers, I would not have understand my childhood in the way that I do. That encapsulates my childhood in a way that I didn't understand when I read it. And reading that one sentence, a little complicated sentence, sure, reading that one sentence snapped something in my brain that made the abuse that I had suffered make sense, gave me language to explain it, and gave me a way out, a theoretical way out of it. And this is the gift reading theory can give us. And it takes work. Um, Roy Perez, who we adore, who, um, Daddy Roy, is, uh, was a student of Jose Simon Munoz, um, 
and it, it, you know, it's, it's, this is his world. He does theory. He has an incredible Twitter thread that goes viral every so often about the fact that theory is hard to read. But when people are writing that type of philosophy, they are also pushing up against the bounds of knowledge and doing it within the field in which they work, which means it requires a certain language. If the ideas that Judith Butler was working on in 1990 or that Bell Hooks was thinking about, if they were easy, uh, they wouldn't be the, the true complex notions that they are. Well, it's, it's compression, right? Yep. Like poetry. Yes. So, so why are we forcing certain forms of, of work mm. to fit into a standard of prose that you know, is yes. mainstream? I, it just requires a different compression. Yes. It's it's silly to talk about it like it's like exclusive. I mean, sometimes it can be. It can be, and I do think we have to be honest about the fact that having the time to learn a new language, the language of theory, is I hate this word, but is a privilege. But I'm a huge believer that everyone's life deserves time to make and consume art, and to make and consume books or whatever you want to do. We all deserve that time away from our labor the labor that is distracted upon us, upon which we depend to fucking live. The goal is that everyone has time to actually sit with the craziest notions that are being written, the craziest art that's being made. Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't yeah. be like tossing out really interesting modes of thought just because everyone doesn't have access to it. We should be hoping that and working towards making sure everyone yes. has access to it. And I'm so excited that Judith Butler is writing a trade book um, and I'm, I think that that book is going to be, you know, do, I, I really believe that they Can are you get that, that blurb. Uh, I called email Judith. <laughs> yeah. You got a Judith Butler. Blurb yeah. Cold emails do work in this industry. <laughs> they really do. It was the, they really oh. do. Um, so yeah, well, that was spectacular. And y'all said everything I felt needed to be said on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, Truly, much like Toni Morrison, theory requires work and time, but it gives and gives and gives and gives, but you have to be willing to wait for the payoff. And I mean, I just feel like that's the same principle that that applies to good sex. So <laughs> we all know how to do wow, it. Wow, we're doing edging jokes now? We're living in the world of edging jokes. Listen, okay. listen. All right. We're thoughts. We were bound to get there. Um, so another question for both of you. Um, this is a little more lighthearted when, and we do need that. What peaceful habits have you developed since COVID started? Have these habits evolved throughout the pandemic? Did you say peaceful? Peaceful. Peaceful. <laughs> Not- I'm going to take that to mean rest, self-care, whatever. We I got a motherfucking dog and he's the fucking best and I have the best dog in the world. No one can say shit about it. Uh, and he is my peace and my joy and the best thing that's ever happened to me. And after I got him, I wrote a whole essay because this is all I ever do about how uh, loving an animal also means acknowledging that it's going to die before you. And that's a part of the joy and the sadness of doing it. I know, I know, I know. But I wake up in the morning and I sleep in and then Max and I play in the bed for like 20 minutes and Devin usually comes in and is like, what's going on in here? And I'm like, this is Max and me time. Okay, this is just Max and me right now. Uh, and he's the best. The best. I, I love that you just threw in a little dark moment. <laughs> um, so on brand. brand. You just Always have, on brand. You have Truly. the brand down. Honestly, oh, Fran's wet dream. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, I did get a cat. I did adopt a cat, Howie, um, who was... <laughs> 
sorry, I'm going to bring in my little dark moment too. <laughs> uh, before I got him, it was listed. He was listed saying um, that he had been shot by his owner. I found out it was a BB gun, which is not make it doesn't make it That's better not, really. Oh but um, and then he was dragged behind a car, which I don't even know what that means i didn't ask more questions i just immediately was like give me this cat because i was like yeah we're we're trauma survivors trauma twins trauma twins (laughs) um and he is the sweetest little cat i have ever seen like loving grateful you know i need a cat that's just gonna like be happy that they're alive because you know i i think i'm a pretty good cat dad but like i didn't want to test it you know it's like i got to get a cat that like just wants to be alive like just happy to be here (laughs) not shot not dragged (laughs) i've managed to not do that (laughs) um he stays fed so it's been great our our trauma our trauma animals are so similar max as those of you who know him he is the most anxious animal on the face of the planet and will absolutely avoid he loves people but hates people you know how he's not anxious i don't know what happened i don't different trauma response (laughs) i i too will answer this question very quickly because i'm going to join the fray and say that my roommate adopted a dog that is very dead that is very dead in the show well and his name is mr sheffield Oh, Mr. Sheffield. He's a good boy. He's very cute. He's a very good boy. And it's really an ideal situation because I am basically co-parenting him, but I don't have to pay his bills. Yeah, that is you, baby. That is you. It is perfect me. That is you. I love him. I love spoiling him. He brings so much joy. He's very chill, like Howie. I, and um, I'm about to go to Petco after this and spend a hundred dollars on. I was going to say, she's like, who cares? Max is Max deserves everything. I was going to say there there might be a Tiffany dog collar coming in the mail for <laughs> Mr. Sheffield. You better post wow. that. Wow, I'm, ba- I'm it's bad. It's bad. Wow, it, truly, it's bad. The dog's going to end up against the wall in the Revolution Den. I have to say, <laughs> we can cut it off if we need to. <laughs> the, the collar, you mean the, the collar? collar. Okay. The collar. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god well i mean listen do we need men in the revolution um all right last question oh are we done already this has been um i know this has been, been so a after party. but listen I, there were more questions and we're going to keep them and we may find a way to work them into a oh, food for thought. So, yeah that's a great um, idea if you wrote a question and it's in the pile of cards and we haven't answered it you know fear not you'll get an answer eventually I'll, I'll DM airwaves. you. I'll DM you your answers. He really will. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. What brings you hope in the midst of so much crisis? And I think, I'm just going to say, I think that this encompasses both your books and the world at large. Ooh. You want to start that one, baby? I can do that. Yeah. Um, what really brings me hope, I'm trying to answer this honestly, you know, because I think it's like a very personal question. Um, I think what brings me hope is just loving people. I I have a hard time loving myself. I think it's it's just really hard. Um, I don't hate myself, but it's just you know you don't get up and be like I love myself. I wish I did. Den I does. Did. That is Den. People that is. Do. Yeah, I was like, I was like do. you don't. I hear that people do this. I mean. <laughs> It tracks. It, it doesn't Dan. track for me, though. I mean, same. no. I mean, well, we don't need. <laughs> we already know that the minute we see you, Joe. Um, <laughs> there's a sadness deep in there. Um, 
I love you. Oh, I love you too. And I was like, um, you're but I, I think just like knowing that love exists, this like, and you talk about this in your book a little, and I've seen you talk about it in interviews. Um, the Shondaland interview today talked about it as well. Um, this this idea that love can't be this sort of objective, measurable thing, right? But that it matters nonetheless, and that community matters. Um, and, and these things are, these ineffable things are so important to me. And sometimes it's hard to believe that they exist, you know, like it's like, is it just chemicals firing off? Yeah. You know, and there, there is a chemical component to everything, right? And you write about this, but there is a real felt experience that's as real as the chemicals yeah. that we talk about. Um, and I think that gives me so much hope, like that we can live in that. And we can imagine, and that I can grow, you know, because I just, I, I, so much of my life was spent thinking that I knew things, right? Like I, I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian Christian family. My father's a Baptist preacher. You got to believe a certain way, right? Yeah. Growing up. And then suddenly the rug just like was swept out from under me. I had no idea what reality was. The only thing I latched on was to a kind of liberalism that I now no longer espouse. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, not I, I am liberal, but no other way. I have not. I'm, I'm not doing a JD Vance thing here. Oh my um, God! Who I, who I wasn't I trying to corrupt tonight. Wow. Who, who I sat he with? He who now shall not be named. Y'all want to know that I sat? I sat next to JD Vance and um, Colson Whitehead, and um, I forgot who else was there. Anyway. Um, we were all supposed to do this like penguin talk and JD Vance was like so horrible. And I thought, okay, good. I knew that he was a horrible person. Anyway, um, I am not, I'm not saying I'm not liberal, but I, I do think that like, just like being in one world and then entering another one and like wholeheartedly latching onto both, it, it made it very hard to find, um, love again. Oh, and I think I found it, um, and it's just, yeah, it's a miracle. <laughs> yeah. It does. I mean, love feels like a miracle when you meet it and you meet it at different times in your life in very unexpected ways. And it can be the love for a partner or a friend or an animal. Um, my answer is love is the answer that you've covered. And I have two that are a little bit different. Uh, and I'm going to start with the hard one. And that is struggle. Um, as someone who's been an activist for many, many years, uh, who was doing left-wing activism in the aughts when there was even less space for it than there is now. You don't struggle because you're going to win always. You struggle because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do when you see injustice, when you see the prison industrial complex, when you see the way healthcare harms people. You struggle, and you build coalitions, and you do activist work. You do everything that you can do whether or not you think it's possible to win. And to do that with people you love is even better. And a life spent trying to make the world a better place is a life well spent. And so that is one side that I, for the rest of my life, when we have opportunities to make change, we take them. Even if it's hard and a lot of work and you make no money doing it, it's not the point. We have the opportunity to leave the world different than how we met it. And it's been broken for a long time. It's not, this broken world is not new. The other side is pleasure. The other side is poppers on the dance floor. 
the other side is pleasure that is not for its own sake only. Um, I miss going out. I miss poppers on the dance floor. The roof at the Eagle is outside. COVID numbers are high, but the roof at the Eagle is chill. And there are ways to find pleasure without doing harm. And pleasure is valuable. It is political. It is queer. And you can also find it with people you love. You can find it with strangers. You can make it spur of the moment. And pleasure is worth living for. So love, struggle, and pleasure. Said like a good slut. <laughs> that is, that's an, it. That is an it. ethical slut. Thank you all so much for being here. Yes. Thank you both for this incredible, illuminating conversation. Hello, thotties. This is producer Alex again and producer Kenya. I mean, head intern Kenya. And we are just so happy that we were able to be there in New York for that live recording of Joe's book launch. It was fabulous. And I'm happy that we, you, you are all able to hear it because we recorded it. So we're back this week for another dessert. I know that often we talk about different forms of media, and especially queer media, TV shows, movies, all kinds of things. But Kenya and I are here to talk about some different kinds of media, some immersive media and some games that we had the chance to check out at this year's Tribeca Film Festival. So for this week's dessert, we wanted to talk about some of those items we saw, especially the queer ones. So let's start. Ken, what was we saw? We saw so many immersive games and immersive programs. So those involve basically the kind of things where you go in and you have like a VR headset and the controls and all that stuff. It's very tech heavy. So we saw a bunch of them, but we had a few favorites. Ken, what was your favorite that you saw? Well, first of all, I just wanted to speak about the experience in general. So just to make it clear, like there was a kind of wide range of things happening within the immersive space. So there was VR, as Alex mentioned, the kind where you have a headset and you have two controllers and you're sitting down in a complete different world. There's the kind that you use with your phone to scan the room. So it's like alt, um, I forgot, AR, that kind of reality. There's also, there was also ones that was a hologram, a holograph, hologram, holograph, hologram, um, that you could see without any glasses on. So the tech is definitely really advanced. Um, the first one we saw was called Plasto Sapiens. Um, it was the first thing when you first walked in. There's a lot of stuff hanging from the ceiling. It just looked really interesting, and I saw that it was VR. And we got served plastic caviar. We got served plastic caviar. I ate it for the experience I don't like any caviar, but yeah, it was super interesting. I loved that. Um, And so you kind of walk into this little cave where everything is hanging and you sit down, you put on the VR headset and you basically go through this journey of it's kind of dark, but explaining how us as humans and our sexual reproductive organs are changing because we are inhaling so many microplastics and how we are becoming completely non-binary as we fused with the plastic. And it was really interesting, super well done. There were no glitches. Um, You moved around a little bit. It was completely 360. There were moments where you, you know, they were like, you're melting now. And you really felt like you were melting. I mean, the visuals and the sound, the sound was so amazing. Um, And it really taught me a lot. I'd never thought about queer theory and plastic, um, but it made me think a lot and they made really good points. 
And we actually spoke to the creators at the end and they cited because there was a lot of queer theory talk in the previous segment in Joe's book launch. The whole project was inspired by an essay called Toxic Progeny, The Plastosphere and Other Queer Futures by an academic named Heather Davis. So it was definitely an interesting look into the into the queer future and as we fuse with plastics. So definitely check that out. All this all this information is on Tribeca immersive i think it's like tribeca slash immersive or something like that you'll be able to find it and then we also saw another great one what was the other one you saw that you liked um so i also will say that one of the things that really stood out about this is that um in order to experience these films and these games you have to have such futuristic advanced tech Mm -hmm. and a lot of times the tech would break down i also had this experience when i did uh vr ar at sundance like the tech is just not fully there for the entire film or the entire game to run without crashing. So Plastic Sapiens was one of the ones that did not crash. So shout out to y'all. There was this really amazing exhibit called Missing Pictures. And the premise of it was um, filmmakers, artists that couldn't get their films fully done. Um, So you would sit in a VR space where the filmmaker is literally walking you through their film um, and what parts they could afford, what parts they couldn't. Um, but they kind of tell you, they finish the story, you know, they tell you what the ending was going to be and they get real about, you know, what the producers and what the studio wants and about the financial aspects of being an artist. It was super cool. There was one where a filmmaker was just sitting around a circle of artists and passing a J and you could, I literally sat down, you could sit down and it felt like you were in the circle the way everyone was looking at you. Lots of eye contact. Very, very cool. Um, very futuristic. And I loved this picture called Father is Gone. Um, just beautiful animation. The way you were in the virtual reality, you felt like you were really there. Um, and the story was really beautiful. It, it just, I feel like it pondered what life is like as an artist that is a missing father and the the idea of fathers and absent fathers and um, what you learn by fathers being absent. So that was called Father is Gone under the Missing Pictures segment. And I thought it was super, super beautiful, very cinematic. Um, and I also love the story. Yeah, that was one of my favorites, too. And it kind of because, as you know, we're podcasters. So it was really interesting because it was kind of almost like a podcast narrative because it had these film directors. Catherine Hardwick was one of my favorites. She I did not even realize she did Twilight. That's on me. She did Twilight. She did 13. She's a legend, but she was basically narrating this film called Monkey Wrench Gang that was supposed to star Matthew McConaughey, Reese Witherspoon, all kinds of stars. And it wasn't made at the end of the day, but she's basically narrating the journey of that happening, which would have been an incredible podcast, but it's actually even better because there was this whole VR experience that went along with it. And you were like in the desert with her shooting and she was explaining these stories. And like Kenya said, passing the J. So for us as podcasters, it was really interesting to see these other elements brought into the storytelling. It was really cool. And we did play a few games. We're not really gamer girlies, although I kind of want to become one now. Um, Kenya played one called Thirsty Suitors that I watched you play. It seemed like you were laughing and having a good old time. Yeah, I'm definitely an inspiring gamer. I feel like the most I've gamed in my life is like Super Mario Kart. And I can say that I'm not great at that. Um, My hand-eye coordination is just not there. But I love love the idea of games. And um, this one was super interesting. It also had a glitch at a point, but it was... 
it was such an interesting game because it was a story. So basically you are in the body of this queer girl and um, you are going through your life and defeating all your exes with the help of your queer like fairy godmother. So she's talking to you, giving you advice. You're going through life. You're changing your outfits. You're seeing friends. And ultimately, you are defeating your exes by literally fighting with them, like battling. Um, I'm not really good at fight games, but it's giving very much like Street Fighter, Street Fighter 2. Um, so I actually lost the game because I I couldn't defeat one of my exes while fighting. But the game was super cute, super queer. The sound was really great. Um, it was a fusion of a lot of uh, classic games. And, and I just love how... It was a story. You know, they really figured out a way to tell a story, make it super cinematic. But you're also involved, you know, playing the game. And it was on an Xbox. Um, But yeah, shout out the visuals and shout out the idea because I've never played anything like that. And I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that was called Thirsty Suitors. And it was from um, Outer Loop Games and Annapurna Interactive. And I think that from what from my research, I think that's going to be available just to the general public anytime soon. So keep an eye out for that. And all the other items we mentioned, too, I think are going to be available for the public, not just at Tribeca, for instance. So bookmark those. Check them out. Super queer, super cute. And um, thank you for that. We'll see you. Oh, Kenya has something else to say. Sorry, I just (laughs) forgot. There was something that was really important, I think. There was a... A VR queer library that this queer woman invented because in so many places of the world, it's illegal to be queer. It's illegal to have queer spaces and share queer art. So she created um, a huge museum of queer art and history artifacts, but it's in the virtual reality. And because it's sort of, you know, in the metaverse, governments and law enforcement can't touch it. So I, I thought that was super, super interesting um, and it was the first of its kind. So shout out those girls. Thank you. We love you. Thank you. Check it out. This episode of Food for Thought is made possible by the generous, unequivocal support of Rosé and our home at Stitcher. Our producer is the gorgeous Garganelli, Alexandra De Palma. Subscribe. Garganelli. Subscribe, rate, and review us five stars on iTunes or Joe stops using Facebook. <laughs> oh, no, no, never, no! never. You can find me at Hey Teebs, H-E-Y-T-E-B-S on Instagram because I deleted Twitter. You can find me and pre-order my book, Virology, out very soon at www.virology.com. Um, I'm Den Michelle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Den Michelle, and you can follow my editorial pursuits at Electric Literature. And stay tuned because we will have some really exciting things coming up there. I'm Kenya Denise. You can follow me on IG at Kenya Diggit, K-E-N-Y-A underscore D-I-G-G underscore I-T. Or uh, you can follow Domino Sound and um, follow Domino Sound um, at Domino Sound Co, and that's on Instagram. Find us on Instagram as Gay Sluts Who Read and Facebook and Twitter at Food for Thought Pod. And finally, send your questions, thoughts, concerns, and dick pics to thoughts at foodforthoughtpodcast.com. As always, that's food, the number four, and thought spelled how? T-H-O-T. I love Everything's coming up, Millhouse. Oh, God.